Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Everyone seems to have an opinion on public education in Pennsylvania. With almost 1.8 million students in public, charter, career and technical, and cyber charter schools and intermediate units, most people have a connection. But do they really have a feel for what's going on inside the schools or the challenges schools are facing? A group of school leadership organizations surveyed themselves or you know, there was a survey, and they came up with a 2016-17 state of education report in Pennsylvania. We're going to hear from uh, most of the players, almost all of the players, in uh, the, that were involved in the report in today's program. I want to tell you right up front that uh, if you have a question or a comment about this education, obviously, as I said, a lot of people have opinions. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Right up front, Nathan Mays is the executive director of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association, Tom Gluck, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Association of Intermediate Units, and John Pulver, Associate Director of the Pennsylvania Association of Career and Technical Administrators. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Again, if you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Nathan Mays, let me start with you. The genesis of this report. You know, we wanted to take a look more broadly at uh, uh, what was going on in education. As you said, it's something everybody has an opinion about. Uh, It was an opportunity to survey school districts across the state. We talked with school leaders. We talked with administrators. And we wanted to bring all of that data, hopefully, into one report. I think the number is about 71 pages long. Uh, So it was was an attempt. It started with the survey. We, We ended up with unbelievable amounts of data, an overwhelming response rate. And that led us to say we really should put something together and get it out to the general public. So we've uh, we furnished it to uh, state legislators, uh, certainly all the districts, and uh, it's available online as well. We, we really thought this was an opportunity to paint a more broad picture of it. Is this the first time that uh, this has been done? It, it, it is the first time that, uh, that we've done it, certainly. Uh, it's the first that I'm aware of where all of these different data points have been brought together. How do you want to use this information? Well, I think, uh, again, to, to continue the conversation around public education, and hopefully, uh, you know, we have, a, I think, in the, in the general public, a lot of disagreements over maybe what works, what doesn't work, what's best going forward. But if we can at least start around agreeing at, at the basic data points, that gets us someplace. So, you know, there, there's, uh, there's, there's real positive information in this report. There's some challenges. There's some concerns that are expressed. Uh, but you'll see that the, the report itself doesn't take uh, a position or make an opinion about things. It just presents everything that we found. And uh, let's start a conversation around that. It is very comprehensive. One of the most comprehensive that I've seen uh, having to do with education in in Pennsylvania. There's no way we're going to get to all of uh, the information that uh, is in the report today, but we're going to try to hit some of the highlights. So as far as highlights go, as you said, there are some positives. There Mm -hmm. are some challenges Mm -hmm. there as well. What were the major highlights that stuck out to you? You know, I think when you you dig down into it and you look at the, the major challenges, uh, no surprise for most of us, funding. Money. You know, it's 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 uh, money makes uh, the world go round. I guess is the old saying. Uh, You're not going to sing that. I, hope. I know you no. don't want to hear <laughs> that. Uh, but you know, money really is driving. I think a lot of the challenges. Uh, certainly, it's on everybody's minds. But I think you know, on the flip side of that, despite all the challenges that we've had, uh, some budget cuts over several years, now some dollars kind of flowing back into the system. There's an overwhelming, at least what I took away, an overwhelming positive sense around the people that were surveyed that despite all the great challenges out there, they're still doing amazing things with kids every single day. And there's a sense that despite the challenges, they've been able to keep those challenges maybe from uh, impacting students as much uh, as it could have been. So 
you know, when, when you look at performance, uh, despite the fact that funding is so short, Pennsylvania schools are, schools are performing pretty well. So I, 90, I, thought, I thought overall. Yeah, 90% graduation rate mm-hmm. uh, in five years in uh, Pennsylvania schools, and that counts all of them, and uh, 71%, around 71%, going on to some form of right. post-secondary education. Right. Both are above the national average, right? right? Yeah, they are. And and when you look at, you know, and I don't want to bring it back to the funding right away, but when you look at the fact that we're 46th in the country in terms of uh, dollars being contributed from state government, uh, you know, so they're doing a lot more with a lot less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think when we talk about the, the surprises in the study, the amount of cutting that districts have had to do over the last several years uh, you know, in terms of, of uh, teachers and combining classes and uh, really scrambling to, to make do. Uh, and yet we see those kinds of performance numbers. I think that that's a, uh, a warning that we're, we're not going to be able to keep cutting. I think, I think districts have kind of cut to the bone at this point. But uh, despite all of that, kudos to, to our administrators, to our teachers, to our guidance counselors. They're doing an amazing job, even under the toughest of circumstances. There is so much information here that I will be jumping around. To, and sure. I want to throw in just a little tidbit here because I joked with you about uh, not singing that, that song. <laughs> but uh, one of the findings that may surprise a lot of people is the number of school districts that continue to fund music and art. When I looked at that, I thought to myself, hmm, I thought that this was an area that was being cut in many school districts, and it's around 98% of school districts across the state are continue to uh, offer music and art. And that's, again, not probably when we're ta- all these issues we're talking about, that may not be the first one, but it's just one that kind of stuck out. Well, again, yeah, I, I, think, I think to your point, it reinforces districts are doing a lot more with a lot less. I think when you hear the stories of cuts in many cases, it's not the elimination right away of one particular program. It's it's the unfortunate reduction in maybe some of the options and choices that are out there. You know, if a school had uh, uh, multiple, let's say, orchestra programs, uh, you know, a sixth grade orchestra, a seventh, eighth orchestra, they, they might have to unfortunately eliminate uh, the sixth grade orchestra program. They might have to combine them all into one, which does eliminate some of the opportunities that are out there for kids. But again, districts are still looking at how they can scramble and keep the program alive because they know music, arts, all of those things make a huge impact with kids and certainly uh, give them a more well-rounded experience. You said that uh, districts have cut to the bone. You know there are many people in Pennsylvania, including some legislators, who would say, I don't see that. I don't see, I think that there are some things that districts can cut even more. When you say cut to the bone, what do you mean by that? And that goes back to the challenge, the number one challenge in the survey, that budget pressures uh, was the number one challenge. Well, again, I I think you're looking at districts that have eliminated a lot of programs. Uh, They've done as much as they possibly can do with as little as possible. Uh, You you know, it's always a challenge to try and get through. I guess you, you mentioned people that say, well, I think there's a lot more there to be cut. Unfortunately, at times, and I'll just use technology as one example, uh, they say, you know, do, do, do the schools really need all of those uh, laptop computers? Mm-hmm. They didn't have those when I was in school. Well, the world is a different place today. Uh, you know, when I went to school, and I doesn't feel like it was that long ago, uh, districts didn't have that kind of technology. But 
I don't know how you could make an argument that schools shouldn't be investing in, uh, in you know, one-on-one device programs and things like that. That's necessary today if we're going to prepare kids for the world around them. You know, it's a, it's a different place. And so I, I fear at times that people are attempting to take uh, their direct experience in, the public, in their public education from 20, 30, 40 years ago and insist that that's the model that we should be following today. You know, schools are just a different place today. And what constitutes preparing a child for, for their future is a completely different discussion than, than it was 40 years ago. So I guess I'd, I'd uh, argue that there should be some caution maybe in, in attempting to uh, overlay one's experience into uh, today's education environment. Uh, districts, uh, again, I, I will come back to it time and time again. I'll sound like a broken record, I guess. Districts are doing a lot more with an awfully lot less, and there isn't a lot of room left for them to cut. In fact, I think we owe it to school districts to make sure that they do have adequate funding so that every child is getting the kind of education they need. You may have to explain broken record, too, because the technology <laughs> has gone beyond That's that. true. What is it? It's uh, a, you know, torn up uh, MP3 file yeah, or something, right? Go. It's there something you on your iPod. I, well, one more question along those lines before I move on to our other guest. Uh, pensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have heard about this on the, the state level for sure. retired state workers, but it is a huge issue for educators as well. I mean, the, the statistics are just kind of mon- mind-boggling, the amount of money, the percentage of money that is now going toward pensions in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're looking at, what, about $0.32 cents, uh, over top of every dollar spent on teacher salaries is going into a pension fund. Uh, again, you know, I, I struggle when I hear people say, well, that's uh, the school district's fault. Well, again, it's a state pension program. It's a problem that was decades in the making, and uh, we're, we're struggling with it right now. Uh, we need pension reform. Uh, I think there are very few people left that, uh, that don't believe we need some kind of reform in the system. But this is something that districts are forced to deal with every single day. It's a mandate. You, yeah, have, it's, you have no choice. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and I'll just take the position of the school boards. You know, the school boards, when they set the budget, this is a cost that they can't control. They simply are mandated to, to put 32 additional cents in for every dollar they spend on salaries and, uh, and send it up to the pension fund. So we're going to have to reform that system. But, uh, but in the meantime, it is a cost. And it's something that it didn't have to, I think, if you look back, it didn't have to get to this point. But it is at this point. And we're going to have to look for solutions going forward. It has to be dealt with. That's Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Tom Gluck, let's talk about intermediate units. Sure. And when Nathan is, was, was talking about how education has changed, intermediate units have taken on just an observation. You tell me if this is accurate. Just it seems as though intermediate units have taken on a much bigger role in the education of of, of, of certain students uh, nowadays. But let me start with a broad question for you. In this report, the findings from an intermediate unit point of view, what do you see? Well, I, I think what we see are both successes and challenges. And, and one of the reasons intermediate units um, were happy to partner. Uh, with this report was when we when we measure both successes and challenges, um, we start moving in the direction of solutions. Now, sometimes those solutions need to come from our policymakers uh, in Harrisburg, sometimes in Washington, 
But oftentimes, those solutions are um, ones that we can, amongst the public education community, begin to design and implement. And, and that's the important role uh, of intermediate units. And, and for your listeners who, who may not know what intermediate units are, it's always important to start at that, that basic question of what is an intermediate unit and what do they do anyway? We've been part of the public education system since 1970. And they're, and they're regional education service agencies is the way to think about them. Uh, countywide, often multiple county, lots of districts, uh, and created originally to, to, to achieve economies of scale uh, on both the instructional side of school uh, and on the operational side. So, for example, on, on the instructional side, uh, special education has always been an important role mm -hmm. IUs have played, where districts might have two or three students with particularly difficult challenges that they can't afford well to uh, service on their own, YUs can take those two or three students from one district and a couple from another and all of a sudden uh, provide uh, important high-quality services on the instructional side. Uh, early childhood education, early intervention services, these are direct instructional services that I use partner with the rest of the public education community in providing quality services, but in an affordable regional way often. And then on the operational side, where we are, where as districts attempt to do more with less, um, we are tr helping achieve those savings so dollars can be for the classroom. You know, I, I wish I had a nickel for every time a policymaker said, gee, I wish school districts would just get together and buy paper together or buy computers together. Well, the the good news is we've been doing that for about 40 years. Um, no one buys health insurance on their own. There are very few districts in the state who Thankfully. on their own are buying and negotiating with the healthcare industry. They're doing it through regional consortiums, most times led by intermediates. Same with energy and same same with technology services. So uh, those are the kinds of things that I use. Have a now have a very broad portfolio of work that we're doing with and for school districts throughout the state and for students throughout the state uh, to, as Nathan said, do more with less, but do it well. And I think importantly along the way, sort of reinventing how we do public education. And I, I think that's another uh, key aspect of this report. We begin to demonstrate how we are reinventing education. Uh, at a lower cost model, I think, potentially, but in a more relevant way for kids so that they're engaged in their learning, they're ready for those 21st century careers that are out there. So we're excited to be part of it, and I think the report is just an important way to get the facts on the table and then begin working towards solutions. There are a couple things here you said that I wanted to follow up on. Uh, one, special education. Um, it, it seems as though more students are... Uh, getting involved in, in special education mm -hmm. in programs. Obviously, there are some budget pressures with that. Tell me about that. Well, sure. Uh, you know, I, th I think we, we do see growing numbers of children being identified with special needs that need uh, additional services. And that starts uh, in preschool. So under both federal and state law, children with certain disabilities or developmental delays get access to preschool early intervention services um, that the IUs are the provider. And that same kind of approach extends into school age. And we are seeing kids uh, with, with more and more complex needs both at preschool and school age. Uh, and that's partly because we know more uh, about how kids learn and what some of those challenges are. We know how to recognize them and then treat them. Um, and, but, but it is a growing cost um, for, for IUs and for our school districts 
Uh, and so having to grow that investment uh, in special education, in, in many ways, it's, it's one of the biggest challenges I think districts face is, is that growing cost of special ed in the scope of everything that they do. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about a newly released report by a consortium of uh, education or leadership organizations. It can be called uh, the State of Education in uh, Pennsylvania. First time this report has been compiled, there's a lot of information. I do mean a lot. I encourage you to go to our website. We have a copy, uh, a link, I should say, uh, to the report, and uh, you can learn a lot. It's about 70 pages, a little more than 70 pages, but it's laid out. It's very readable, and uh, I think that uh, there are some things there that would surprise you. Our guest during this portion of the program, Nathan Maines, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania School Board's Association. Tom Gluck, who is Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Association of Intermediate Units. And John Pulver is Associate Director of the Pennsylvania Association of Career and Tech Administrators. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call if you have a question or a comment. Uh, you can send us an email by sending it to smarttalk at WITF.org. On Facebook, we are at uh, WITF's Facebook page. You can leave a question or a comment on Twitter at SmartTalkWITF. 1-800-729-7532. Seven five three two. John Pulver, I want to bring you into the conversation. One of the real, I don't know, good news parts of the study, as I mentioned uh, up front, is that uh, about 71%, actually it's more than that, uh, 71% of Pennsylvania high school graduates going on to some form of uh, post-secondary education. Now, I think a lot of people many times right away think, well, that's going on to college. That is not necessarily the case. And in fact, we've been talking more in this state about uh, how we do need uh, a lot of careers, a lot of people that, uh, a lot of skilled workers, put it that way. So tell me about uh, uh, careers in the technical industry, in the, excuse me, in the technical careers and uh, the skilled careers and what you took away from the report. Well, Scott, thank you for uh, inviting me today. And, and, you know, I have to echo what all my colleagues have shared this morning, and Nathan and Tom, uh, you know, it was an honor to be a part of this report. Um, as the PACTA, as the Pennsylvania Association for Career and Tech Administrators, again, we support all that. We, the, the philosophy of the report by, by sharing the challenges, but also some of the successes that are out there are wonderful. Um, with that said, um, you know, we've seen the successes, as you've asked, and, you know, the CTCs preparing students to enter the workforce directly after high school, if that is their choice, or to definitely be prepared to go on to post-secondary. And many of our students are able to obtain that um, articulation agreements with post-secondary institutions and go on and enter there if they choose to do the community colleges and then lead them to a path of going into a bachelor's degree. So when you think of it, a lot of people really want to think of career in tech ed or as used to be referred to as vocational education, you know, that it was the end point. Well, um, it is not this day, and the education system has really shown that there is options and meeting, you know, the academic standards that are set forth. Um, some of the challenges with ours is obviously, you know, with as my colleagues brought up earlier, was, you know, we always hate to go back to that, that word, but the funding is a challenge for 
um, the districts, which then ultimately bring down. Um, in Pennsylvania, we are um, funded through the school districts. So as cost is increased there, then we're looking at are we really providing the opportunity for all students that are interested in receiving those opportunities through career and technical education? Because, again, the curriculum equipment needs, as you would know, to be able to meet industry uh, in the workforce challenges or, or requirements uh, can be expensive. Let's talk about uh, some of the careers that uh, you're, you're training students for. You know, I, I get the sense, and we've discussed this on our program several times, that uh, there are so many students in our schools, and it's not just in Pennsylvania, but across the country, that uh, they're pointed toward a four-year college degree when that may not be for everyone, plus the fact that there are so many skilled workers in, in so many openings that we need that aren't going filled. Talk about that. So <laughs> it is. It's a national um, challenge. Uh, it's a challenge here in Pennsylvania. We've all really have come together with some great partners to talk about it. But I think when we step back and we look and we say, where is the biggest barrier? I think it's the educating of all the partners. And one of the pieces, you have to, we need to get to the parents, the students, let them know that these opportunities are there. Um, it's a cultural um, thing. We all want the generation behind us to do better. But folks, just maybe parents just don't understand that those jobs are paying well, and they are life-sustaining wages and very well. Um, anybody that has had any type of repairs or anything uh, in their homes or any of that skilled labor that needed to be done, the manufacturing jobs that, that are coming opening and the shortage and in the, in the predictions that are left when you look at the um, salary projections there. So... I really do think it's um, one of it is um, being able to chip away at that cultural barrier that's there and just educating folks. Um, we've been very um, fortunate and blessed to be invited to the table with um, here in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Chamber is really moving on uh, under uh, Gene Barr's leadership to work on let's how do we get this out because his members are sharing what you just said there's a shortage and how do we get folks into those positions moving forward you know scott um th th we talked earlier about sort of reinventing education in pennsylvania and and i and i think our career technical centers have always played an important role in in preparing students for specific technical areas and and they are reinventing themselves to make sure that they're focused on the jobs that do exist and where we need employees. But I think across K-12 education, you're seeing a growing awareness that uh, career awareness um, for students starts early, elementary school even, and then career readiness so that um, we're, there are very creative uh, programs and partnerships between schools and the business community and others um, to expose students to create those opportunities for um, uh, internships uh, and, and uh, even for educators to revisit the workplace to stay, stay connected. I, I think in, in, in the years to come, you're going to see even a more explicit um, work in our schools to get students 
thinking about those careers, understanding the academics that they might need and the other um, experiences that they're going to need uh, for a career that they might be interested in. And that's a growing body of work. Elementary school seems mm-hmm. so early. I mean, that th- almost sounds like uh, the, the British model or uh, yeah, it's you not, know, what we right, do in a lot sure. of other countries where it, you decide very early on what you want to do. It's, it's, not, it's not channeling children in one pathway or another at that age. It's simply understanding the connection between exciting jobs that people are doing, uh, role modeling, uh, but then also understanding, well, if you think you might want to be a doctor, then here's the kind of courses you're going to need to take over time. Um, so that is sort of, it starts with awareness. Um, it's making sure that our curriculum and, and the offerings are relevant to the careers that our students might want to pursue. Um, and I think the other important part of it is when students do get aware, um, they get more engaged in their own learning. They get excited about the opportunities for themselves. And, and we know engaged students are better students and more successful students. And, and the idea of a future career is, is a, a motivating factor in student engagement. You know, we, talked, we talked about the way that, that uh, education has changed from maybe that 40-year-old model that everybody's used to. When I think of, of Votex, and John mentioned that that's how they used to be uh, viewed, you think about the uh, uh, administrative assistant or secretarial courses that used to be taught and now you're looking at cybersecurity, right. you know, and and the huge need in in that area, and that's really some of the work that uh, that those those technical and career centers are talking about. So this is incredibly important work, and and we need more kids to be looking at those amazing opportunities out there. And that's not necessarily a, a, a college path, but boy, oh boy, I mean, you look at what some of those cybersecurity uh, folks are making; it's a good job market. Let's go back to uh, the survey and uh, some more of the information that came out of it. Concentrate of poverty, that there are, according to the report, like 18%, just over 18% of uh, Pennsylvania students living in poverty. What challenges does that present, Nathan? Well, and you look, I think one of the things that came out in the survey was that uh, it's much more concentrated in more of the urban districts. I think, in fact, uh, it was the urban districts, all the urban districts in Pennsylvania, either were at the top or near the top in terms of the poverty groups. I think you look at funding, and, and that came through uh, in terms of uh, receiving a, a lower amount of funding per student. So cer- certainly that uh, creates kind of a vicious cycle, if you will. Uh, you've already got a poverty issue, and now you've got fewer dollars necessarily available uh, to those students. Uh, you know, the, the achievement level, I think, you look at in those districts is affected. So uh, the poverty the poverty data that came through, I think, certainly uh, feeds through into all of those other areas and is something that... Uh, districts continue to try and grapple with. So we're going to have to look at how to move more dollars, I think, into those particular areas. And and there are certain things that we we know, right? Uh, Children who come from families in poverty tend to come less prepared at the early age. We saw that reflected in in some of the survey data, but the research uh, tells us that that as well. So even at the outset, those are communities uh, that have greater challenges and that need greater investment. Uh, often students in poverty are English language learners, so another barrier. Um, and we've started to recognize this in some of our public policy with our funding formula where we are driving additional dollars to those communities who have students with those challenges, but the investment needs to be greater to really get it done. Well, and you look at the uh, the proposal, I think, that the governor has out right now to put more dollars into breakfast programs in schools. Certainly, that's going to do something to right. impact uh, your more poverty-stricken districts. And certainly, as Tom talks about students being better prepared, there's a lot of research that shows, you know, kids that come to school and they're not hungry. 
are going to are going to have an easier time during the day. So you touched on this, but uh, most of the survey, most of the the study, is broken down into rural, suburban, and urban districts, mm-hmm. and. One of the things that does stick out, one of the characteristics of the findings, is that by most measures, the urban districts face more challenges than the suburban and rural. Although rural are facing challenges, a lot of people probably don't think about. Sure. But uh, suburban districts seem to be doing pretty well overall, but the urban districts are really facing challenges. Urban are, and you you mentioned, I I think rural have a unique set of challenges that maybe people aren't recognizing. You look at rural districts uh, seeing a loss in student population. Uh, you know, I've heard people say, well, then we'll just uh, start combining school districts. That's that's just not feasible. You think about uh, some of those northern tier areas in the state. You've got districts that are geographically just huge, and you've got students on buses already probably for about as long as they possibly can be. So we've got to look at the rural problems just as much, I think, as we look at the urban problems. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, and uh, you're home for NPR News and uh, All Things Considered. I'm Scott Lamar. And we're going to say goodbye to Tom Gluck and John Pulver at this point and bring in a couple other guests. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with okay. us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Scott. We'll be back in just a moment. We're talking about uh, a new report, the state of education in Pennsylvania, a lot of very valuable information, maybe some surprising findings as well. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Nathan Maines, the executive director of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association, continues to be with us. But we're joined by uh, Dr. Paul Healy, who is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Principals Association, and Dr. Mark DeRoy. Rocco, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Again, 1-800-729-7532. That is the number to call if you have a question or a comment. And gentlemen, just feel free to jump in whenever uh, you want to in the conversation. There is so much here that uh, uh, want to get to as, as, as much as we can. One of the things that was measured was attitudes from parents to non-parents. And, you know, what I have to admit, Nathan, what this reminded me of is people ask about their congressman. You know, Congress, we can't stand Congress. They do nothing. Eh? But my guy, he's all right. Right. It kind of follows that same pattern here, maybe not as unpopular as Congress. Sure. And, and, and don't you hear that also with people's local school districts, right? Your school district is great, but, boy, education in Pennsylvania is is troubled. So, so talk you, you about that. that. That's what the that's sure, what the report found. Sure. Well, you saw, you know, two thirds of parents believe uh, that the 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 quality of their local district uh, is excellent, but only fifty percent of non parents. And you know, I think the the easiest explanation, if you were to try and draw some conclusions, there is simply non parents aren't as engaged in their local school districts. Their kids aren't going to uh, classes and coming home at the end of the day and talking about that. They're not involved in the extracurriculars, uh, so maybe they're not aware of all the things that are going on. And I think it for at least our our organization and, and probably for all the other partner groups involved really highlighted a need, which is we've got to do a better job across the state of making everybody aware of the amazing things happening in public education. You know, certainly parents are taking that away, but the non-parents aren't as connected in. So they're, and, and I'm hopeful that this survey and, and the study will, will do some of that, is simply shine a light on, uh, especially for non-parents, how many good things are happening every single day. Well, what, what you know, I'll get to in just a moment, but what, what you know is that uh, 
those non-parents continue to pay property taxes. Sure, sure. And at the same time, they often hear these stories about how American students are not performing as well as students in uh, other countries in some areas and that kind of thing. So a lot of times that's what they focus on. Sure. The bad, isn't it always that we focus on the bad news that's coming times, out? And certainly yeah. that uh, sells newspapers and uh, hopefully brings in some listeners. But but we've got to do a better we job. We do that on purpose. No, 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 no. That's, that, no. There's no bias. No. no. Uh, but you know, <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to do a better job because, you know, I think what comes out in this is you, you mentioned earlier the, uh, the number of students that are graduating, the number of students going on, the number of students that are successful. And uh, we don't draw a, a bright enough spotlight onto that. So uh, you're right. We've got to get those taxpayers that maybe haven't been engaged in their local districts in many years since their kids were in school uh, to re-engage at least enough to understand how their dollars are being utilized efficiently and effectively and what a positive impact it's making. Go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah, I was, I was just going to add, I totally agree with Nathan. And, and, and if you look at the results of this study and, and reference to that question, there's a Gallup poll that's done every single year on public education. And every single time, the parents will always rate their schools higher than the schools they don't know about. So it, you do know what you know at that point as well. And, and I would also agree that we need to do a better job telling our own story. Sometimes as educators, we sit back and let other people tell our story for us. Um, and so there are efforts now afoot from many of our organizations right now to get those positive stories out um, to the public as well. I want to bring up another issue that uh, you know was surveyed here in, in the report, and that is one of the challenges that districts are facing is hiring, finding full-time teachers, but especially substitute teachers. Talk about how much of a challenge that is. Yeah, now, um, you're coming up from principals. Yes, you, right. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, I'm going to be speaking on this tomorrow as well. That we do have uh, a problem with the educator pipeline right now. There is a national teacher shortage uh, happening um, all across the country right now, and we know that you know about 30 percent of the teachers that enter the profession leave within the first three to five years. So why is that? So it's an attraction to the profession as well as retaining them in the profession as well. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, and I think Mark would agree with this. We've been hearing from principals and superintendents. The main area is substitutes. That seems to be cyclical in nature. Every few years, uh, this problem um, reoccurs, and, and we're facing that right now. But it's more widespread than that. Um, it, it's getting um, quality applicants um, into our education majors right now. And if you look at uh, the majors across the state, they are significantly down over the last three years. As far as education majors. Yes. You know, Dr. Rock, DeRocco, that is a bit of a change just from an observational point of view because so many times as I'm growing up, I'm, I'm hearing people that I graduated high school with saying they're going to major in uh, early childhood education or elementary education. seems as though the, the, the younger kids uh, were, yeah. were most of the attention was going. But so, so what's changed? Well, we still have several uh, students that are going into early childhood education and elementary certification programs, but certainly not at the numbers that we had before. Uh, we were back in the break room uh, talking while the show was going on a little bit about just the, that we lost pretty much a generation of students who were contemplating going into education. But during the recession, when uh, teaching jobs were pretty hard to find and most districts were making cuts in personnel, a lot of people started steering away. A lot of kids who were going to go to college to be teachers realized that, you know, there may not be a job for me in four years. And so they went off to other venues. And that has just perpetrated the entire, you know, program across uh, not only Pennsylvania, but across the nation. 
and consequently, we just don't have the pool that we once had. I on, mentioned on, earlier that uh, the, the survey is divided amongst uh, three, rural, suburban, and urban. It appears as though urban districts are having even more of a challenge getting teachers. Yeah, well, I think it just stand, it stands to reason that uh, urban areas in particular, they've always had a tough time attracting uh, teachers because sometimes they're very challenging situations in those urban environments. And now you have just have fewer people and they're choosing to go to either suburban areas or rural areas first to see if they can find a job and then they'll, they'll seek out the urban areas after that. So it's a challenge overall. And getting back to the substitute teacher problem, uh, even though districts, I'm just coming off a of superintendency, and we increased our daily rate to one of the highest in the region uh, where I and came What district from. was that? That was Lewisburg Area School okay. District, mm -hmm. a little bit north of mm -hmm. here. And yet we still had trouble attracting people. And what you're finding is that those substitute teacher rates, because of the cuts and the recession and so forth, haven't kept up much either. So people that used to do substitute teaching to augment you know, their salaries or, or use that as an interim type of position until they found something, they're finding other employment now that's uh, much more profitable for them. Mm -hmm. And so and that exacerbates the problem, if you will. And you have to you have to wonder also, Scott, if some of this, we, we just talked a little bit ago about the perception of public education in the state, and if that's not playing a role in students that are opting to go on to, to get a degree in teaching or, uh, you know, folks that are thinking about coming back into the workforce, looking at substitute teaching jobs, you know, are they turned off a little bit by the, uh, the, the news that's always doom and gloom and, and, like you said, education isn't living up to other countries or uh, budget cuts are affecting and that sort of thing? So, so, you know, we've we've got to change uh, the the conversation a little bit here and start pointing out that it is a it's a tremendous uh, occupation to go into. It's honorable. Uh, I, I can't think of another way that you have that that big an impact on the future of uh, of a child's life other than to be a, a teacher. And uh, we we've got to start uh, recognizing the importance of teachers in in public schools. One thing that did stick out to me as well uh, is that when I saw the organizations that were involved in the survey, I noticed the teachers that uh, Pennsylvania State. State Education Association, sure. for example, was not represented. Is there a reason why? You know, it was really just a timing issue. We talked a little bit before we came on the air, and, and this was something that started, uh, at least from PSBA's perspective, with a, a survey. We wanted to learn more. We wanted to see what was out there. And uh, as the data came together, as the survey results came together, uh, it was a matter of reaching out, I guess, to the folks that we day in, day out work the closest with, uh, and it was the groups that are represented kind of first and foremost. So it was it was less about uh, uh, teachers, you know, PSEA and, and, and all of that then, but we just ran out of time and we, we said, we've got something, let's get it out the door. We wanted the data to be fresh. So would, I'm hopeful they'll join us in the future. Would you be interested in hearing what teachers have to say? Absolutely. I think it's vital to the conversation. And, and I would just add to to that, principals were not surveyed um, initially in this as well, and we had some ongoing conversations about that for future surveys to get the principal's voice in the study mm -hmm. as well. However, when you look at the challenges, I think the top three, four, five challenges would be the same for our school leaders as they are when you surveyed the superintendents. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take some phone calls. Let's go to Larry in Lancaster. Larry, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I'm uh... Earlier it was mentioned that really the school districts are running pretty bare bounds and there really isn't much room for savings. And I would suggest that one way to save money would be to consolidate school districts so that they can share costs, share administration, and therefore reduce their expenses and have greater flexibility with things like magnet schools that would attract 
uh, STEM students. And it might also help with the issue of urban versus Hey, Larry, well, for some reason, your phone call's been disrupted there. I don't know what that is. It sounded like a, you're on a submarine or something like that. <laughs> but, Nathan, you did mention this. Governor Ed Wendell, uh, maybe 15 years ago, uh, it wasn't that long, proposed merging school districts. We have 500 school districts in the state. Many people, especially here in the southern part of the state, point to Maryland, where it's done on a county-by-county county basis. Sure. Uh, but... On the surface, that would seem to be more efficient, a cost saver. Why is it, you said earlier, it's, it just doesn't seem doable here in Pennsylvania? Well, you know, I think that, and I think, I think it was Larry who called in and mentioned uh, fewer administrators, that sort of thing. Look, right. Look, the, the mandates on a school district are still going to be there. You still have to, to reach all of the uh, expectations that uh, the federal, the state, and the local governments set uh, for education. So combining two school districts, you know, the first thing I always hear is, well, we'll get rid of a superintendent, which, you know, Mark gets the shakes when we talk about that. I could notice but, his little beads. Of yeah, he's, you know, let's not go there. But, but look, <laughs> how do you, I don't think that that reduces anything. You're probably, I would guess, going to see uh, needing to hire an additional assistant superintendent, right? Because you've just increased the footprint of this school district, uh, you know, double, triple the size of it. So you're going to need people that help to go out and make sure that, that those mandates are met. You still have to feed every child. So you're still going to need a food service. You're still going to uh, need a curriculum director, probably more now that you have more students. Busing's not going to get any cheaper. You know, you can't combine school districts and simply tear down half the buildings and say, we'll bus the kids even further. There's no savings in that. So there are only so many things that you can do. And I mentioned earlier the, the rural school districts across the northern tier. And people say, well, these are tiny little districts. And, and I, I, I tell this story occasionally of getting a chance to visit Austin School District, which most people haven't heard of. Potter County? Uh, yeah. And, and the tiniest school district in the state. And, and you look at that and you say, well, they have one building that's K through 12. There must be a way that we can combine that with another district and save money. They're too far away. Kids would be on the bus beyond what's allowed. Uh, you know, there, there's no savings in terms of teachers. They're already, their superintendent is already, I believe, the, the high school principal. And frankly, when I've been up there, I've seen him pull out a mop, and he's mopping up the floors and everything else. That's efficiency. How do you? You bet it is. But <laughs> where, where are the cost savings in combining a small school district like that? Okay. You, what you just described, I mean, that, that is very reasonable. But there may be people out there listening saying, okay, well, you're going to hire an additional assistant superintendent at much less money than what a superintendent would probably make. That there would, you could f probably find some savings along the way. Not that all 500 school districts, we could compact sure. them. I think Governor Rendell had mentioned like 100. Not that they all could be merged or, you know, uh, shrunk to, to 100 or something mm -hmm. like that. But are there districts in this state where it makes sense? I think if you have a district that wants to talk to a neighboring district, and I know of one or two right now that say, you know, maybe uh, putting it all together into into a single district would make a lot of sense. I think that the state and, and uh, the local school boards and the superintendents have an obligation to explore that. And I think we've seen historically a couple of examples. But you can't go in with a plan statewide and say, 
we're going to just draw, draw the map randomly and say these are the districts that are going to be forced together. So yeah. I think that we're already out there uh, advocating for that and saying if there's a way to to put two districts together that makes sense, let's do it. But but back to, you know, the governor's plan you mentioned 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, you can't just come out and announce 500 is now going to be 100 and, and, you know, we're going to figure it out. There's no savings. And there. just to go a little deeper into that, you know, when you start to combine districts, it's more than just administrative cost you're combining. You're combining labor pools. Uh, so labor contracts have to be assimilated across districts. And there have been several districts that have studied this over the years. There have been other larger-scale studies. And almost every study comes back, even when the two or three districts get together, they realize we're really not going to save any money. So maintaining our, our current independent status is probably the best cost efficiency for our local taxpayers. And, and you lose two other things there. Well, you, you lose local control. And I think the the one thing that would come out is people want to feel like they have a say in, in their local school district. Yeah. Absolutely, in Pennsylvania. So you combine a couple of districts together. I, I find it hard to believe that the voters in, in Allegheny County are going to be comfortable now with one school district where there were 42. Uh, so, you know, that's 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 uh, an important thing to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to Mark's point about labor contracts, people don't realize how few dollars are actually, uh, I'll say, in play to debate locally. The vast majority of dollars going into public education and being allocated by the school boards are predetermined. They're dictated. We talked about pension costs. We talked about federal mandates, state mandates. So there just aren't savings there because everything continues to exist. You're still going to pay those just pension costs. Just a couple costs. issues because I want to take some more phone calls in the seven minutes or so we have left. Just a, a couple of things I want to throw out uh, results from the survey that bargaining was not that big of uh, a challenge when surveyed as far as, uh, you know, teacher cost and, and you know, bargaining with, uh, with, with, with labor. All also, class size. I think, uh, Dr. Rocco, you were talking and you kind of referred to this a little bit about bigger classes if we combined. Um, 23 was the average in, in Pennsylvania across the state. That may surprise some people because they thought that, uh, you know, class sizes were getting bigger. Let's take some uh, phone calls here. Bob is in Lancaster. Bob, you're on the air. Hey, um, my comment is more about the last section that you were doing, uh, talking about um, employment opportunities for students in the future. Yes. And I... I guess it's, um, I think it's really short-sighted to tell students to go into skilled labor um, when the reason for the skilled labor shortage is the massive recession we had, which had huge job losses for plumbers and electricians and all kinds of skilled labor workers who are now out of the labor force and are retired or have moved on to a new field. Mm-hmm. And so there's a reason for the shortage, which is unemployment in that sector. Mm-hmm. Okay, th- uh, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Nathan, the, the point he brings up it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how schools have changed. How have they changed since that recession in 08? Certainly, some of the things that uh, Bob described there are entirely accurate. But what about schools? Oh, I think you look at you look at schools since the recession, and we talk about the budget cuts, and we've talked about that, I think, throughout this program. Uh, schools have done more with less. Uh, you look at uh, they've they've put off building new buildings, and and we do have an expectation, I guess, that our schools are equipped with. Uh, the best technology for students to learn on. So uh, a lot of that's been delayed. You go out to buildings now and where, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the solution would have been uh, a massive building
housing improvement program, you see them kind of uh, slapping Band-Aids on some things, unfortunately, uh, putting well, that I, off. Can I interrupt Please. for just one second? Because that is one of the issues that uh, you asked about in the, in the survey was buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know we have an, a lot of aging school buildings. But one of the areas that the, the, the survey pointed out quite well is that one of the biggest challenges, and uh, Dr. Healy, maybe you can address this since you're in a building, or as principals, the mm-hmm. principals are in a building, is heating and air conditioning. Mm-hmm. That that's one of the biggest expenses and biggest challenges, not new building so much, as much as making sure that heating and air conditioning isn't a problem. Yeah, I I mean, certainly uh, building construction, building facilities, uh, when you have budget cuts, they're put on the back burner. Um, In addition to heating and air conditioning, is also the safety of our schools and, you know, the access to our schools and being uh, proactive so that when people are entering the building, there's a secure environment. And some of our uh, older buildings are trying to come up to facilities that have that access um, for secure students and staff as they come in. So that's another issue as well. Um, So, you know, when we go back to the issue uh, of budget cuts, and I think Mark will agree, we were both former superintendents, is, uh, you know, we need to realize that in a school district, you know, 75% of a school district budget are fixed cost, right? Salary benefits and, you know, just like you mentioned, heating and air conditioning and paying all the bills. The other 25% we have some control over, right? But, you know, when you have some massive cuts and deficits of hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions, you don't make those cuts up with uh, slashing paper and pens, right? right. Let me just bring this up in the last few minutes that we've talked often about those budget pressures. Uh, the Pennsylvania schools in the last two years, and it is proposed again for this year, have gotten increased money from the state. But that's not going to cut it. I mean, I know that uh, schools are going to say that we need more money from the state. But for the most part, you rely on funding from your taxpayers, your property taxpayers. And you are up against the wall. Taxpayers are up against the wall. So, you know, we've talked about property tax reform in this state for years, and we've been talking about it more seriously here in the last couple of years, but there are going to be winners and losers all over the place. So, Nathan, what about that? I mean, there's no, there's not money growing on trees out there. There isn't, and, and you're right. There have been a couple of years now with, with some dollars being put in. I think the proposal this year that the governor put forward was for about $100 million, which sounds like a lot until you start dicing that up amongst uh, 500 school districts and other entities. But when you look at where we were pre-recession and when you look at what the pension payments were uh, years ago versus what they are today, that $100 million is eaten up right away. You've got districts that literally could take the increase that is proposed this year for them and still have fewer dollars available at the end of the day. So you have to go they, to local property taxes. You do. You do. I mean, and, and that's what we talked up front about. You know, we're 46th in the, in the country in terms of the state contribution to public education. And despite the fact that we see some great performance in our public schools, uh, I, I think that's atrocious. And I think the state has an obligation uh, to meet that, that need and, and should be investing more strongly in public education. But you're right. One way or another, uh, public education costs. Uh, and it's and it's going to come out somewhere. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Nathan Maines with the Pennsylvania School Boards Association, Dr. Paul Healy, 
Pennsylvania Principal Association, Dr. Mark DeRocco, Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators. Gen- gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. And if you want an education on Pennsylvania's education, I encourage you to take a look at the report. You can find a link on our website, WITF.org. I mean, just a, a few other things that are addressed in the report. Uh, the test. We didn't even talk about test scores and uh, how well Pennsylvania students are doing. Uh, property tax reform, charter school reimbursement. Uh, students who are prepared or not prepared when they enter school. These are all things that are addressed in the report, and I encourage you to take a look. 91 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control. In fact, public, public health officials are calling the current opioid epidemic the worst drug crisis in American history. Chances are you know someone struggling with opioid addiction. Sadly, it seems no one is immune to no matter their gender, race, income level, Age. Health Smart on WITF TV first focused on the opioid epidemic in 2015. On tonight, tonight on WITF at 8 o'clock, Health Smart, the opioid epidemic, will revisit the guest from that previous program, so be sure to tune in.